Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR. I'm Douglas Stewart, and this week Elena and I sat down with Professor Rune Hartman of Aarhus University in Denmark to talk type 3 interferons, their roles in virus infection, and their evolution. Please enjoy the episode. So my name is Douglas Stewart. I'm uh, studying, and I study innate immunity and HIV in Sam Wilson's lab. I'm Elena Sagru. I'm a postdoc in the same lab, uh, researching HIV. Right. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, I'm Ronald Hartman. I'm professor of innate immunology at the University of Aarhus. Perfect. And can you tell us a bit about what you what you work on? Yeah. Well, I work primarily on type three interferon and the role in viral infections. Uh, I do also have a project in the lab that are, are very basic science. We look at how viral infections are recognized and how they're combat in insects, particularly in, in the fruit fly. Oh, that's quite interesting. Can you tell us a wee bit about how you how you um, came to work on type 3 interferons? And yes, I can. That's a short uh, story. I, <laughs> I, started my, I finished my postdoc in 2004 and I, I started my own lab. And I spent Actually, both my PhD and my postdoc working on a protein called 2,5-A synthetizer. Uh, so I still had some synthetizer project, but then I thought that a new lab should need a new project. And I really wanted to avoid competing with all the guys that have been for a long time in the field. And Interfere Lander was discovered the year before. I thought it was very inspiring, and, and that's how I decided pretty much that it was an interesting problem and the field was not yet too crowded. And I would say then it kind of slowly, that project slowly took over the lab and, and now the dominating project. So, um, it seems like it's still an area where there's a lot to learn about type 3 interferon and that there's, you've mentioned before, a dual role that it can play. And so how do you go about trying to untangle its role in studying it? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question. Yeah. I, can, I guess I could talk for hours about that. Um, in the end, you have to kind of focus. And I think um, right now we are, we're focusing a lot on the Lambda 4 and we're trying to figure one part of the dual role. What is the role that Lambda 4 plays, particularly in chronic inflammation of the liver? Um, the other thing uh, I showed you, for example, the data from Andreas Vax's lab. So we don't do mice experiment in, in my lab. And I think we made a, a decision to really focus on, on, on human things. Uh, but we do a lot of very fruitful co collaboration with mice people. Uh, you saw the data from Andreas Wack. Uh, we also done, I think it came last week, Nature Immunology, a very nice collaboration with a German group, Peter Staley, which really is a long time biologist, influenza biologist, uh, being able to show that interferon lambda actually primes adaptive immunity. And it not only primes the production of antibodies, but it primes the production of IgA, which is the antibodies you need at the surface of the lung tissues. So making a lot of sense. But again, um, it's a collaboration. We provide all the interference. We was also involved biochemically in some of the experiment. But all the in vivo experiments are done in, 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 in uh, Freiburg in Germany, uh, in Peter's lab. Um, but a lot of traffic. So in general, I think uh, both myself and my group are quite active in visiting other people. And, and we have our focus area, and then we collaborate on, on other areas. Maybe we should define uh, um, type 3 interferons are obviously quite quite newly discovered. What What's the difference? What's the similarities between the other other um, other types of interferons? Could you give us a wee bit? Of well, the defining characteristic of an interferon family is the receptor usage. So that's what defines them. And the difference is 
Type 1 is pretty much universal and type 3 are targeted. There's only a relatively specific subset of your body's cells that respond. Interesting part is that the targeting is quite different in human and mice, which I like because I don't work that much with mice. So you know, there's actually some human unique features about this system. So what what cells are being targeted uh, are being primed by uh, type three interference? Epithelial cells, and in the mouse it appears to be largely epithelial cells. In humans, there's a small subset that we haven't really identified yet, but there's a small su subset of hemopoietic cells or immune cells. And, and I think that could be an next project in my lab, really trying to identify and characterize not only what that subset of immune cells is, but also what, why and what is the consequence of responding to type 3 interference. Do you think those responses will be different in all these different tissues and to different viruses, or do you think there will be a lot of common ground in how... Response to, to what? Uh, so, to the type 3 interference response. Actually, no. I no. think uh, the how a cell responds to an interference is, is almost universal mm -hmm. because it's an emergency program that's supposed to stop a viral infection. So that's almost universal. Where you might see, or, or, or think where you will probably see, some unique features are specific immune cells that, that may, or they will have slightly different things because Try to make a picture out of this, right? If you're lung epithelial cells and you see interfering, you're just you're going in safe mode, a bit like your computer, trying to stay out of the virus. If you are a macrophage, for example, interfering production means now it's time to go to a war. So the macrophage react actually different. It doesn't shut down. It actually prepares to fight the infection. Uh, so in generally, no, but immune cells might have unique responses. So you've studied, well, from your talk earlier today, you're talking about how you've you looked at influenza and you've also looked at HBV. Are you going to look at other viruses and maybe see if there's a different effect or no? From leading on from your previous well, <laughs> like the HBV data is is from Jacob George's lab mm -hmm. in Australia, so so they're not from my lab. Yeah. Um, I think we are trying to look a little bit on that mm -hmm. uh, in the Danish setting, uh, simply because I thought it's so interesting that it's actually worth duplicating. Mm -hmm. um, again, Jakob George is a clinician, so he, he comes from a clinical side. We really want to figure out what the interfere lambda do. Uh, but I think first we want to be sure that the phenotype is universal. Mm -hmm. So we might look a, a bit on that. Again, I'm, I'm very much a basic molecular biologist, so for me, why is that tool? I largely, what, what we do in my own lab, we largely use a few model viruses that mm -hmm. we can use easy and simple. It's not the virus per se that interests us, it's, it's actually the interfering response to the virus. Um, so I think that's how we will go about it. So your background's in molecular biology, uh, not so much the virology side? No, I did a, a PhD as a molecular biologist, biochemist, and then I did my postdoc was purely crystallography. Right. Uh, and, and now we are spreading out to a bit more of, but if anything, I'll say I'm going a bit more immunology than, than biology, actually. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but it's, I think that's the intriguing part of viruses. I think it, for viruses, the immune response and the virus itself are so closely interlinked that I think it's difficult to actually split the two. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your, your work with influenza 
Um, would you mind just kind of summarising that for a, a few minutes? What, what would the listeners need to know about uh, influenza and type 3 interferon? Well, the first part is a simple argument that type 3 is this first-line defense that our lungs and, and other wrist tissue, the barrier tissue, need. Um, and I think the way we have got, gone about that is, A, we've done some basic molecular biology characterization, and then we have picked up specific collaborations trying to, you know, liaise with the best influenza virus people out there. And I think the, the two cases in that was Andreas Wack at the Crick Institute, really uh, dealing with the beneficial effect of type 3 interference and also the ability to limit inflammation. Uh, and the more recent with, with uh, Peter Staley in, in, in Freiburg, showing that, you know, the interference system is also thinking ahead. It, it fights the virus, but it actually prepares for the next step. It prepares for the generation of antibodies. Uh, um, and there's a link there. Uh, and that was, I think, a quite interesting collaboration. Um, but the mice data was not done in my, I mean, a lot of the work that's done in other labs, actually. Um, does influenza have any way of antagonizing the uh, type 3 interferon uh, response? Yes, it does. Influenza actually uh, is a bit smarter than that, so it antagonizes the general interferon response. What it does is, it, Rig I, as I think I showed the first slide, this key receptor for RNA viruses is it's also what induces interferon. And influenza has a protein called NS1 that targets the guy. And uh, influenza is therefore able to uh, kind of uh, limit interferon production. So if you get a wild type flu strain from the hospital, that actually induces relatively low amount of interferon. Um, I think you showed an interesting figure where if you added um, and, or you exposed mice to interferon three two days after infection. Mm -hmm. They had a reduced um, amount of death. Was that correct? Would you like to maybe talk about? Well, that was the Andreas Bach collaboration. Mm -hmm. If two days post-infection, if you treat with type three interferon, you increase survival, and the reverse, if you treat with type one, then you decrease survival. They actually die rather fast. And that's as simply due to the inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so, do you think that there could be clinical applications of type three? Well, I think it's, it's obviously that that you can use type three interferon as a first line defense of well, basically of viruses where we have no other defense. Right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it would be nicer with a very specific treatment, but it it would be used for life threatening respiratory viruses. Um, for which we have no other. You could. You also talked a bit about how you could potentially use uh, inter interferon treatment uh, post-infection as a, a prophylaxis in the case of perhaps. Uh, Actually, that would be pre-infection. Sorry, did I say post-infection? Sorry, <laughs> yeah. pre-infection. Yeah. Yes. Uh, sorry, uh, in the case of uh, certain outbreaks, is that? Yes, and I think we had experienced some outbreaks, it, not so much for flu due to the nature of flu outbreaks, but uh, the outbreak we had with SARS, and, and we know that there's a large number of viruses out there that could potentially go zoonotic. And I think in those cases, um, prophylactic treatment, it is not only an option, it's actually currently the recommended option by WHO, 
Uh, but that will be with type 1 because you have no clinical ready, so to say, type 2 interferon on the market right now. Okay. I'm sure if, if, if it was actually, if you could get it clinical grade, they, they would use it. Yep. Yeah. Would you maybe like to talk about um, the gene? You were looking at a GWAS study and found certain mutations that um, changed the type 3 interferon response. Would you maybe talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, it, it was a bit longer because other people did the GWAS, but they yeah. did not look at the mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, GWAS is made in a way that you select markers that physically cover the genome. And as you know, the genome is divided into what's called linkage blocks. So that's basically the pieces between the recombination events. So a GWAS does not tell you it's that gene. It, it is like a map. It targets you to a physical region of it. What we then subsequently, and I showed that there was a relatively large number of variation, and I only showed the common variation, not all the rare variation, right, in that linkage block, which is only about 5 kb. Uh, but then we really, and we, we actually spent quite some time going through that piece of data and trying to make sense of that and realized, we realized that there were the mutation, changing a P2S, but also that this mutation was linked to two different GWAS markers, if you noted the slide, right? And that then you start looking on the GWAS model and say, well, the whole thing actually might make sense because we have three haplotypes. There was a huge fight between the geneticists because one consortium, and that was the American consortium, where the proline are the dominating thing, had one marker that was the marker that targeted the proline, and another consortium has a different, and, and they were, yeah, basically not agreeing. But you could actually, if, if you really carefully analyze the gene, you could pick that apart, and, and then we did all the biochemistry and the analysis afterwards to, to prove it. Um, maybe just coming to wrapping up uh, with the time, unless you've got any other questions you'd like to ask. Uh, maybe getting your take on how type 1 and type 3 interferon may have evolved together, how, how they're working together um, in our system to fight off infection. Well, I think the, the evolution of those two systems is an interesting feature. Um, type 1 is the older of the systems, so we've been able to trace that all the way back to the early vertebrate evolution. So in it, it's clearly there in fish, bony fish. It's, it's probably there, but it's still unclear, and there's some issues with, you know, sequencing quality, so from the, from the sharks and the rays. Uh, but uh, Ciprophis has a very clear uh, type 1 system, and, and it's well described. The interesting part is they have two different type 1 systems. So they share one receptor chain and then they have two private chains or two groups of that are both type 1 interfaces. Um, and we think that, uh, so I was involved in that work, and we actually think that it's the same, it's both type 1 interference, at least the original evolution from the same thing, um, but they might have a similar role with differentiating responses. Uh, and, and there are some uh, guys at the Pasteur Institute that are actually looking quite carefully into that. Type 3 originates from uh, the IL-10 slash IL-22 family. Uh, the receptors are clearly very closely linked, uh, and the IL-22 private receptor and the interferon lambda private receptor are head to tail on the 
chromosome. Um, and they're clear the result of a gene duplication. They're expressed in the same tissues. So uh, epithelial cell has both the IL-22 and, and the IL-1 uh, uh, interferon lambda receptor. So that came somewhat later in evolution. Uh, uh, it, we, we see it first in frogs um, and, and totally how that system came about is not clear. But the receptor for the lambda is clearly from IL-22 side. And the IL-22 exists already superface, but the lambda do not. The cytokine, we are actually not totally sure of the evolutionary origin of the cytokine. Uh, and, and that would be a long story to discuss that, but the current state is we are not totally sure mm -hmm. uh, uh, where it came from. So I guess, um, just to wrap things up, um, do you have any advice you'd like to give young scientists? Is there anything that, if you could go back in time and speak to a younger version of the self, you'd like to tell yourself? or? Yes, I mean, I think work on projects that you like. Uh, try to, you know, you make some rather non-informed decisions very early in your career when you pick your supervisor and usually you have no clue why you pick the supervisor. But that's that decision has a huge impact on your on your career. Uh, try to pick good ones and try to pick interesting projects. Yeah. Um, I think that's the, the best advice I can give. Um, I think it's worth getting in touch with potential supervisors and trying to set up an, a, a pre-meeting with them to get a, a gauge on what they'd be like to work with. I, I definitely think it is, and I think you know it's in everybody's interest. Uh, I have no interest in having students. First of all, I, I really need students that want to be scientists and, and, and has that drive, because otherwise it's never going to work, right? Yep. Um, and if, if for one or the other reason, personally, it doesn't work between us, then it's because you work, scientific groups are not that big. It's almost like a, 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 a you know, a master-apprentice relationship sometimes. If it doesn't work, why pursue it? Then, I mean, there's a lot of other supervisors. Just, I think, another combination might just be fine. So definitely, I mean, I always meet with students before agreeing to them. And, and I think actually most would like to meet you anyway. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's a problem to shop around. Just go and talk to different supervisors and see, you know, uh, what you would like. Uh, and, and you know I think science is a tough business so, so one shouldn't forget to have a bit of fun also and I think that relates to if you don't have a good relationship with your supervisor it's just not fun yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the good project and you know a group where you actually like to work I think that, then you're off to a good start uh, uh, but if you have to force yourself to do it it's just it's too tough for that it's not going to work Hard to get out of yeah. bed if you don't enjoy yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's good advice, I think. Because you're going to put a lot of hours into that. Yeah, if you definitely. Want, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I, f I think that's my best advice. That's good, I think. And just uh, one final question, uh, a bit more fun, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, if you weren't doing, if you weren't a scientist, what would you be doing? Do you have any idea, or is it were you always set on being a, a scientist? I was certainly not always set on being a scientist. Uh, I'm not sure I really knew what I wanted to do. When I started, and I, I just got slowly intrigued by the project as I, I proceeded in my career. I'm not sure what I would do uh, if I were another scientist, frankly. Uh, um, but I think only very late in my career, I decided that for a long time, and I think that was, you know, way into my postdoc, I thought this was just something I'll do for a little bit, and then I'll go do something completely different. And, and you know, then it just caught me and you got, got there. Yeah. But I think that was very late that I actually decided that I'm going to 
try to start my own group. That's all from this week's episode of Contagious Thinking. Elena and myself would like to thank Professor Hartman for taking the time to share his knowledge of type 3 interference with us. As always, you can hear all our past and future episodes at cvrblog.myportfolio.com or you can get in touch by emailing cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com or tweeting us at cvrblog. And remember, please do join us next week for another exciting episode. Mm-hmm.